Nehemiah 7, 1 through 4. Now when the wall had been built, and I set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah, Hananiah, and Hananiah the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, send some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. <laughs> Imagine having two brothers, one named Hanani and the other one named Hananiah. The parents must have gone crazy in keeping those kids in line. Anyways, good to be here. Thank you for all. Thank you all for for coming and making the effort to come and, and fellowship and hear the word of God and to worship God. Um, and thank you, Walter, for for exposing yourself and, and sharing with us this morning. It was really it was really in line with a lot of the things we're going to talk about this morning, and and so we're thankful. And so you know we're in the series in Ezra and Nehemiah. They were experiencing um, some efforts by God to renew the kingdom after 70 years of exile in Babylon. I think, uh, is that kind of buzzing there a little bit? Anyway, um, and so Ezra and Nehemiah were a part of this movement from, from Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the walls. And it was just a, a national time of deepening in their walk with God and in their, in their calling as the people of God. And uh, so we're, we're using it as a series to explore um, what it means for God to work in us for renewal. And I want to start this this morning um, asking the question of what would, what would renewal look like at, at Twin Cities Church? Um, as I said at the beginning of the series, the first message, um, I, we don't feel like the church has come to this place of great apostasy or, or disobedience. We feel like Twin Cities Church is in a really great place. We're very thankful for what God has done over the, the uh, about 10 years that we've been going at this. And there are many people's lives that are continuing to be changed by the power of the gospel and the spirit and the church at work in their lives. But there's always opportunity for growth, um, and as, as, as Lawrence uh, just mentioned this morning, um, it, it is very easy for us to lose grasp of the gospel. It's very easy for us to get stuck in, in, in religion, and so I, th I think, you know, when I just thought about what would it look like for us as a church to experience renewal, um, you know, the first thing that, that came to mind is, is um, a a need to, to remember and to deepen in our reliance upon the, the power of God. Um, it, you know, Paul has a, has a statement, there are, there, are, there are those that he would experience in his ministry that um, believed and affirmed in God and his word but denied the power of God and the power of his word. And, and I think Walter's story 
is, is, a, is a helpful way of understanding some ways that we can do that. See, biblically, biblically, God is at work. You see this very significantly in the book of Acts and all throughout the New Testament. God is at work in the world through the gospel and through his Holy Spirit and through the church. That those three things are all working simultaneously together. The church being the body of Christ, the church being the, the family that God has born through the gospel and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So that the church is the embodiment of, of Jesus Christ. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that the, the church is the house, is the family of God, the household of God, of the living God, the, the pillar and support of the truth. And so the truth is Jesus Christ. Its reflection and power demonstrated in the world goes through the church. And we can deny the power of God by not recognizing, um, by not recognizing that God is wanting to work through people in our lives. And, and he's working through the Holy Spirit. And what, and what that does, if you think back to the sin's effect on the world, uh, it separated people. It separated people from themselves. It separated people from God. And what God is doing to demonstrate his grace and the power of the gospel over the power of death is to bring people back together in fellowship with each other and in fellowship with God. And the gospel and the spirit do that. And we can, and we can deny the power of God by not recognizing the role that the church is to play in our lives. And one of the things that the, and one of the really critical things that the church provides for is a, is a place where uh, we can expose. Like, like Walter said, it was obvious to everybody around him what his issues were. Okay, because oftentimes it's not obvious to us what our own issues are unless we have other people that see them quite vividly telling us, hey, you know, let me help you. Let me help you. And so I think... I think, there, I mean, there are a number of other things. All, you know, we, just this week, working through this series, just, you know, we have, we have marriages that need renewal. We have situations with our kids, challenges with our kids, where we need to see the power of God demonstrated because there's nothing else that can help. We need to see the power of God at place, at work in our workplaces and in schools and our neighborhoods people that we know and love that need to know Jesus Christ. We, there are lots of places in our lives, our everyday lives, where we really need to see the power of God. And so this morning, as we look at this passage out of Nehemiah, it recalls and rec it records the, the time when they, they had completed the work. It took 52 days to rebuild the wall and some other time to do some other things. But I want to look at today at this idea of, of foundations and gates. That's the first thing they approached. Nehemiah and his crew, the foundations, the wall, the gates. And what are the, and I, I want to look at that and use that as kind of as a metaphor, looking at what are the, what are the, the means through which the Holy Spirit works? What are the foundational things in renewal that the Holy Spirit uses? And there's four things. First one is extraordinary prayer. The second one is a rediscovery of the gospel. The third one is a, is a rigorous obedience to Jesus' teachings. And the fourth one is innovation in our ministry forms. So the first one, first foundation, first essential element is extraordinary prayer. And extraordinary prayer is a reflection of our dependence 
on the Holy Spirit. Prayer, and we're, we're going to have a sermon on prayer, we're going to have a sermon on fasting, but I'm just going to do an overview. It is a reflection of our dependence upon the Spirit. Because it's, it's a stepping back. I mean, it's, a, it's one of the disciplines of what they call engagement. So there are disciplines of engagement, things you do, then there are, there are things that you don't do. S- uh, disciplines of abstinence, like fasting or chastity, all these different kinds of things like that. Actually, so prayer is considered a discipline of engagement, but I actually think it's a discipline of abstinence, a discipline of pulling away, because what you do in prayer is you stop working. You stop doing things, and you, be, and you step back and say, okay, I'm going to stop doing things. I'm going to stop developing strategies. I'm going to stop developing new tactics. I'm going to stop working to change my situation. I'm going to stop doing those things, and I'm going to first go to God in prayer. And then I will pick up strategies and actions and engagement. And that first effort of prayer, if you remember the Proverbs, if you acknowledge me in all your ways, I will make your path straight. James says if you, if you, if you make all these plans to go to a new place and start a business and make all kinds of money, but, it, but you don't at first say, if the Lord wills, you're being arrogant. And so we, 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 we really have to see that if we are going to depend upon the Spirit, it needs to begin first acknowledging God in our lives and our need for Him to demonstrate His power. And it's extraordinary prayer, which means that we're not just focused on our maintenance. So Tim Keller in his, in his book on prayer distinguishes between two types of prayer. We can have maintenance prayers and kingdom prayers. Maintenance prayers are the ones we are typically praying when we are in great need, okay? Our marriage needs help, our kids need help, our finances need help, whatever. We're having a stressful job, whatever. Those are maintenance needs. And God tells us to pray for the things that cause us anxiety in our lives. But if you remember, if you remember Jesus' instruction on prayer to his disciples, and, the, the, and this is another great part of Tim Keller's book on prayer, is that he uses that prayer kind of as an outline. I don't remember where I got it. It was years ago. I was still in my teens. I'd heard a sermon explaining the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. So there's this acknowledgement of God. And there's a worship of God at the beginning of our prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first request we make, according to Jesus' instruction on prayer, is not our maintenance needs. The first things we pray for when we are approaching God and seeking His face and seeking His power in our lives, the first thing we need to be concerned about is the will of God. And we say, well, what is the will of God? The will of God is the establishment of His kingdom on earth, as He says there later in that, in that prayer. And so it is, it is the movement of the gospel. It is the breaking down of sin. It is the, it's the emergence of the light into our world. And all of the New Testament letters and Old Testament communicates what God is doing in this world. And then the next thing, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. That's where 
we pray for our needs. If we just go to God with our needs and don't approach him in worship and we're not concerned about his ultimate purposes just for our own maintenance, what you're going to find out, what you're going to find out um, is that your, first of all, your zeal for approaching God is going to diminish, okay, because, you know, those of you that are parents and have children, if your kids just keep asking for stuff, you know, at the beginning you give it, right? But after a while, when there's little gratitude, little thanks, um, not an acknowledgement, not a concern for what the overall family or the purposes of the family or the wishes of the parents are. If there's just kids wanting stuff, as parents, you're like, you know, I, I, I'm not just going to keep giving stuff. God is super faithful. He will, he, will, he will give us what we need. He's promised that. But he's, he's less inclined to keep giving generously with, with children that aren't grateful and that just kind of keep wanting to do their own thing and not concern themselves with his purposes. And so the first foundation, extraordinary prayer, let us pray for things that are in the will of God. Let us pray for things for the, the advancement of the gospel, for the flourishing of the gospel, for the gospel's work in our lives, for the gospel's work in the lives of the people of the church and in the people of our communities and workplaces and schools. And then we finally, we confess our sin. Okay, you, we don't confess sin at the beginning of the prayer. Oftentimes we approach God because we feel so guilty, we know we're wrong, we know we're sinning, and we want to get it off our chests. So the first thing we do, oh God, I'm such a sinner. Now you see that in the Psalms. You see that in the Psalms. You see a whole variety of prayers in the Psalms. But if the overall content of your prayers is confessing sin and asking for stuff it's going to be prayer that's increasingly ineffective and it's in, not just not just out and about but it's increasingly ineffective in your own, your own life because you're going to God just for yourself and Jesus didn't come to serve himself and he didn't come to create people that are just serving themselves from Philippians Jesus gave up the form of being God and took on a form of being a human being. And he submitted himself to the will of God for the betterment of others. Now, his own joy was wrapped up in that. But he came to serve. And so, as we approach desiring and seeking after and longing for and praying for and fasting for the power of God to be at work in our lives... Um, we need to concern ourselves with God and his purposes and pray for those things and be concerned about those things in addition to our own interests. We don't throw our own interests aside. Second thing, a rediscovery of the gospel. Every church is headed for apostasy and disobedience and either religion or irreligion. Every church is headed that way because the, the condition of our heart is to move away from God, is to move away from the gospel. If we don't make a concerted and strong and vigilant effort to keep the, the gospel center, to keep the gospel center, a re rediscovery of the gospel. And you know the best way to rediscover the gospel is to experience suffering. 
Because suffering is, is, the, is the means through which we recognize our limitations. And, it, and it's a recognition that we need the power of God in our lives. And see, the gospel is not, how can I escape from the suffering that I'm experiencing? That's not the gospel. The gospel is, how can I experience the power of God in the midst of my suffering so that my suffering doesn't overwhelm me, but that the, the power of God incarnated. You guys, for those who have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you acknowledge that your sins have been forgiven through his death on the cross, that he is the Son of God, he is Lord, that, that his sacrifice on the cross truly was enough to pay for your sins and the sins of the world, and that his resurrection of the dead truly is powerful enough to give you life. If you believe that, the scriptures teach that he has given you his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is alive in each one of us. And that Holy Spirit of God that is alive in each one of us is what gave Jesus the ability to endure his suffering on the cross. He did ask God the night before, God, if you could take this cup from me, if you could take this responsibility or this calling from me, I would really appreciate that, but I understand that your will must be done. So it's not like, it's not like Jesus didn't recognize the depth of the suffering that he was about to face and wanted to be, and, and wanted to be out of it. He, he recognized that, that was not, it was not going to be pleasant, and if, and if he could avoid it, that would be great. Because he was a man. He was, he was a man. He was a man. But, it, but the Holy Spirit is what gave him the ability to go through that in the way that he did. And even up on the cross, having the ability to say, forgive them, God, for they know not what they do. In the midst of his own people killing him, the people that he had created, each of them spe specially, they, the very people he, he knew intimately killed him. He was the ultimate victim. It is an illegal arrest. It is an illegal trial. And he had the ability to say, God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, so the gospel is the power of God in us that recognizes that there is, a, there is a power greater than the sin and evil of this world, whether it's our own or others against us. There's a power greater in this world that has the ability to take the sin and evil that we experience, and to turn it on its head for our joy and for our good and for the glory of God. And that's the gospel. And so our lives are going to be full of suffering. And we can either let those things detract us from the gospel and we'll lose it. And we'll just morph into a group of people that get together for some events and some religious practices, and some good deeds, but we'll, we will be absent of the power of God. Because in religion and just forms, we can do a lot of things and just practice and keep it up out of a sense of moral obligation. Like, we know there's a God, we know judgment is coming, I'm going to do some good things to appease my conscience. I, I've got friends in those kinds of churches. There are a lot of churches that number in the thousands. Mainline, Catholic, Protestant, evangelical, where the event is what 
the event and the deeds are kind of what keeps them going because in their consciences they believe that it is their good works and religious practices that are going to save them. And then it's not. We are good because of what Jesus has done for us and that then energizes us for good. That's why we do good. So, so just continual rediscovery of the gospel through the sufferings of our lives. The third one, the third one is rigorous obedience. Now when you start talking about rigorous obedience in churches, the first thing that people get a little afraid of is legalism. Okay, but there's, a, there's kind of a, a belief or a notion that if you're serious about obeying the commands of Jesus, you're being legalistic. You're paying too much attention to the laws and to the rules. And there's kind of this assumption that Jesus doesn't have any laws or rules. And that's just not true. <laughs> there's the law of Moses, and then there's the law of Christ. The scriptures speak of both. We are no longer under the law of Moses, but we are under the law of Christ. And, and in our walk with Jesus Christ, Gospel of John, he is so beautiful. He's, Jesus says there's, you know, there's just a few things you need to hold on to as a people. You need to abide in my word. You need to pray and ask for the will of God to be done. And you need to love other people and keep my commandments. And he equates loving people with keeping my commandments. And so there's this hesitation around commandments with Jesus. But Jesus said, you will keep my commandments if you love me. And so we have legalism, and we ha which is what people are afraid of when we start talking about following the commands and rules of Jesus. And then we have licentiousness. And licentiousness is this, this disregard of law, this disregard of rules. And that's wrong. That's wrong. If, if Jesus equates following commands with loving people, if we don't follow the commands of Jesus, what we're going to end up doing, according to the Gospel of John, is hating people. If you don't love people by following the commands of Jesus, you're going to be hating people. Licentiousness, which is this, this disregard of laws and rules, is ultimately a disregard of people. See, legalism is believing that you can earn God's love by doing laws and rules. Licentiousness believes that laws and rules prevent us from knowing God's love because we define God loving us as removing any suffering in our life. God doesn't want me to be unhappy. I would be unhappy if I had to follow those commandments. Therefore, God does not want me to follow those kinds of commandments. That's not a loving God. So licentiousness is or legalism is, is believing that following law earns God's love. Licentiousness is following law holds me from God's love. And there's a, the third category is what Paul calls a faithful obedience. A faithful obedience. An obedience to the laws of Jesus Christ that are based on faith. What is the faith? We believe that Jesus Christ, his life, that Jesus Christ is love, and that to experience love and to experience his life, 
a life where I will never thirst or hunger anymore, and he's speaking of his spirit and his soul, where we will not long anymore. We will have contentment, we will have peace. If Jesus is that, then following what Jesus says is the path to those things. Following Jesus' instructions is the path of life, is the path of peace, is the path of love and fellowship with other people. That's the third option. It's not legalism, it's licentiousness. It's faithful obedience, obedience that comes from faith, believing that Jesus Christ is indeed life and that his commandments are good. His commandments are good. So renewal comes when we get really serious about following Jesus' commandments. And, there's, and, and you know, we go through the texts that we do in house churches thoroughly. Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 full of Jesus' commandments. Colossians chapters 3 and 4, full of Jesus' commandments. Put away anger and immorality and slander and malice and deception and stealing. Put on generosity and kindness and forgiveness and patience and work so that you can provide for your needs and the needs of others. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Wives, respect and submit to and honor your husbands. Fathers, parents, love your children. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey. So they're very basic things that are all about our human interactions with each other and with other people. Be considerate and gracious to those of the world for you were once like them. And be ready to engage in good deeds and to communicate the gospel when they ask you because of the orderliness and the beauty of your life. We have to really get serious, increasingly serious about those commands and all of the rest of them in the New Testament. It's towards the end of this week, I had to confess to my, my wife twice and my kids at least once, at least one of my kids at least once, just for being harsh. Being impatient. You know, and so when, I, when, my, when my family confronts me or when I see disorder in our home because of my sin, how serious am I going to take that sin? Am I just going to brush it off? Or am I going to say, you know what? I really want to follow Jesus in this. I really want to put off harshness and anger, and I really want to put on kindness and generosity. So am I, am I going to confess that sin? Am I going to pursue Christ and pray about it? Am I going to do what I can to what the scriptures say, put that sin to death? Or are we just going to kind of blow it off and wait till it gets worse? And then our marriages and our families and our work and our, our school, and what, the things that we do, we just kind of, you know, av- you can't avoid. <laughs> we've got to confront. We've got to confront ourselves. And the fourth one, the fourth foundation, those are the three big ones. But one of the things that the historians seen, have seen in, in revivals is that there is a, a place for uh, innovation in ministry forms. If you think about the, the Reformation, the printing press was a huge tool in the spread of the gospel out of Martin Luther's time, the printing press. And if you look at other, other uh, uh, revival preaching where they would be like open air, when we think of revivals nowadays, we, all, we just immediately think, oh, those tents, open air, country preaching, especially in the South. Well, that was a new ministry form back then. 
you know, now people keep trying to do the same thing and it doesn't work anymore. You know, you know what I think we need to do in terms of, of innovation? I think we actually need to get radical, which means to go back to our roots, to go back to the foundations. Our, I think our culture, this is my take on things anyway, our, 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 I think our culture is easily, it, we're, we're tired of fads and trends and, and innovations. What, what we, I think what the, what the world would love to see is some sincerity. A, a movement away from social media. A movement away from flash and glitz and things being presented as true that aren't true. Especially us. I think one of the things that we really need to innovate is just being real. Which is why when we set up the church, we wanted to emphasize the house church model so that we could actually be family together and community together and expose what's really going on in our lives rather than presenting some image of us that's not true. And in that, we can follow Jesus' teaching rigorously, which creates beauty. This is another one of the keys to revival. Our increasingly obedient lives become increasingly beautiful and attractive. Titus chapter 2. If we follow the commands of Jesus, the name of Jesus is honored, the word of Jesus is honored, and we become more attractive, and our enemy doesn't have anything to say about us. And it is the beauty that our lives reflect that are going to that, that, that cause people in the world that don't know Christ but are living amongst us and in us and working with us and in our neighborhood, they're going to say, hey, what is it about you? You have a joy and a contentment, even though I see pain and suffering in your life. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? Roland Allen is an is a ancient, not ancient, he wrote a few hundred years ago. He's, he's, he wrote a book called The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church. And he said, you know what, little groups of Christians gathered together, living sincere Christian lives, becoming increasingly obedient to Jesus Christ, their lives become increasingly orderly and beautiful. He said that will spark the spontaneous expansion of the gospel. That will spark renewal. That will spark a movement because that is where the power of God is being demonstrated. So obviously if you're a part of this church, you know that we, we don't have a lot of flashy innovation, you know. We're trying to get back to the things that are going to really reflect the power of God. We're going to get, we're, we're trying to, to emphasize things that are going to really reflect the power of the gospel. Let me pray.